Well, we're still talking about the wheat and the tares. Turn to Matthew 13. Look at verse 24. Another parable put he forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when a blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath the tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them, that both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, Go ye gather, go ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then uh, the explanation is that starts with verse 37. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. So it's Christ as the sower. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And therefore the tares are gathered together, are gathered and burned in the fire, and so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing again. We've read this portion several times now, and we ask you to continue to bless our hearts with it. Great and wonderful teachings in thy word. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, look at verse 25. Now, verse 25 is something that when our Lord is explaining the parable, he doesn't mention. It says about while men slept. Now, this is through the negligence, laziness, and carelessness of God's ministers and people. Now, it's easy to lead the ignorant astray because by nature they dislike the truth. And I'm sure that Paul knew this for he predicted in the last times it would be like this. Look at Acts 20, verse 29 and 30. Acts 20, 29 and 30. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So Paul said, it's coming. Also look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3.
now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's pretty serious. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now when it says speaking lies and hypocrisy it means that they're doing it pretending to be something else. They know what they're saying. They speak in lies in their guise of hypocrisy, probably of being a Christian, of being a wheat, of being a minister, of being a godly person, a hypocritical one acting, but speaking lies even out of that situation. And then we find this part here that so pertains to the Catholic Church, you can't miss it. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Now who else does that but the Catholic Church and has done it for all those years, telling their priests they can't marry, telling everybody in their church that they can't eat meat on Friday which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Okay, while you're over there in Timothy, turn to 2 Timothy and look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Paul's warning. He's, Paul has insight into this thing. He knows what's going to happen. The Lord told it to him. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. You'd think that he'd run out, but he hasn't. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power there from such, turn away. Paul had a great mind for bringing to the forefront these characteristics of people that were going to be ungodly in latter times. That's, that's quite a list. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Seventeen things concerning people that will have a form of godliness. It's very interesting. Now is Paul the only one that knew? No. Peter knew too. Turn to Second Peter two. Second Peter two. Verses 1 through 3. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And he's talking to his own people. Who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now that's one of the reasons why they follow them. When they talk about the way of truth, how God saves a sinner, they deny it. They bring in their own doctrine, their own ways, and that's why many shall follow them. 
because by nature people don't like the truth. The truth hurts. The gospel's offensive. Gospel doesn't pet anybody on the back. It brings everybody into the dust. If the gospel goes home to an uh, to a heart, it lays that person open as a rebellious, hell-deserving, lost sinner. That's where every person is before the Lord saves them. All right. Now, the world today is a field of tares with just a little wheat mixed in. And because the tares are the majority and hold the same untruths, the wheat appear to them to be tares. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly the way it is. Who's the weird ones in the world today? The world or you? You appear to the people to be tares because you believe something totally contradictory to the religious mode of teaching and thinking today. Look at Acts 24, 14, just to give you an example of how we appear to the rest of the religious world. Not, not to just common, ordinary people, to the religious world. 24.14. Now Paul is saying, he's kind of making an introduction to what he's going to say, and he says, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, well, that's what I'm saying, People today are going to say that we are teaching heresy. And most of the folks in Paul's time believed their way and figured that what he was saying was heresy. After the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. See, even then, everybody thought that Paul and, and the new doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ being the only way, the truth, and the life, and that all men have to repent and come to Christ, that was heresy. And believe it or not, today, they have a lot of fine words that cover doctrine and make it sound like they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't. For one thing, they never enter into the door aright. They never come as a lost sinner. They never beg for mercy. If you don't do that, you, you haven't even got a start. But all the religious people out there get a start by entering in some other way. And they skip that. So they never understand the gospel. They never understand true preaching. Now, in our parable, our Lord says, Let them grow together until the harvest. Now, wheat ripens slowly. It ripens so slowly that it's hardly noticeable. And so the godly ripen slowly, hardly discerned even by themselves or others. And he that complains most for lack of growth may be the most growing Christian, for there is a downward growing in humility. Now, wheat must have showers to ripen it. And so must the saints have showers of divine or heavenly doctrine. Spiritual dew to ripen them. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 6. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. 
I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labors. God takes care of the increase. Now the word of God is the rain, and it comes with power and brought to the heart by the Holy Spirit. Then there's some divine growth. Now wheat needs the sun. So do God's people. Turn to Malachi 4.2. There we see a description of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Righteousness, spelled S-U-N. Isn't that something? Just exactly. Malachi 4.2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, capital S, Shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. That's the best fed ones. Not those put out to pasture. Those in the stall that get all that good, rich grain every time it's eating time. Now, speaking to believers, what should a believer do to ripen for harvest? Well, first of all, improve all opportunities that is all seasons of grace whenever you can read read whenever you can come to hear a message hear it and God's people can distinguish between the false and the true they won't listen to the false they can't stand the false once they know the truth they are so capable of distinguishing between the two All opportunities to read, to pray, or just meditate. Don't, don't lose them. Opportunities to hear the word preached. Come. Now, if somebody tells me that they're an awakened sinner, that they're interested in being saved, and they're not here when the word is being preached, on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, I'll tell you that the Lord hasn't pushed them yet. They're really not interested. Because I know from experience I know when I wanted to know Christ that I never missed a service. I didn't care what the situation, what the weather, what was going on, who was sick, who wasn't sick. I had to hear if perchance that was the one time when God would take the word home to my heart and save me. You just don't know. A believer should observe well and cherish all those convictions of conscience and of the Holy Spirit either in respect of sin or duty now when the Lord brings something home to your conscience to your mind and you know it's wrong you've got to fight against it you've got to determine in your heart or if he convicts you of something you should do and you don't you should strive to do it Live much in the thoughts and sense of death and of judgment day. Think much of the harvest and the end of the world. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32, 29. 
Deuteronomy 32:29. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Interesting, huh? Even way back in the time of Moses, because Moses wrote this Deuteronomy, that the wisest thing anybody could do would to consider their latter end. Now these thoughts will quicken you to duty and tend to make you more serious and diligent in the whole course of your life. Look at Second Peter one ten. Second Peter one ten kind of summarizes this whole thing about considering a latter end, considering death. Peter says, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things ye shall never fall. Now it's important to make your calling and election sure. Some folks might say, well, I don't know about my election. I don't know if I'm elected. Well, how about your calling? Have you ever been made interested in your own soul? Have you ever been made interested in eternity? Have you ever been made interested in learning about the Lord Jesus Christ? We well, see that's that's part of the calling. Have you ever seen that yourself as a lost sinner in need of a substitute? That's a wonderful part of the calling. That's calling and being drawn. That's having a knowledge of things that the normal, natural human being does not have an interest in. Those who are not called never know these things, never care about them. And calling and election go together. There is no election to a person if they can't trace their calling. And when God quickens your heart, lets you know that you're a lost sinner in need of Christ, you have a calling. Now your calling is to come to Christ. And you may have come to him time and time and time again in your heart and mind, but you just don't get any satisfaction. That's God's business. Yours is to believe. His is to give assurance. Some folks never have assurance. For some reason or other, the Lord does not let them have assurance, and yet they're believers. Why? Because they can trace their calling. And when they can trace their calling, it goes back to election. There'd be no calling if there wasn't any election. It's like saying one and one is two and two and two is four. Day by day, gather more strength against sin and the corruptions of your own hearts. Give not into a carnal and worldly frame of mind. You just shouldn't do that. Look at Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13 For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. That's totally after the flesh, without any spiritual 
following of the Spirit at all. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now notice it says, if ye through the Spirit, by tedious experience, I can tell you if you try to mortify the deeds of the body by yourself, if it's not through the Spirit, you're not going to do it. And it'll be more like killing yourself than killing, killing sin in your body, the deeds of the body. God's Spirit has to do it. You have to come without strength. You have to ask Him for anything as one that's totally helpless and without strength. Okay, look at 1 Peter 2.11 where it says, Abstain from fleshly lust that war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Dearly beloved, Peter speaking, and it's very a delicate word, Dearly beloved, his people, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Strangers to who? Strangers to the world. Strangers to anybody who is not associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't have you. Even though they could be a relative, they could be your husband or your wife or your children. They will look upon you as a stranger. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be a stranger to them because they don't like what you believe. And a pilgrim, one making a journey through a wilderness. And that's what this world is. It's a wilderness. Yeah, we have uh, pitched our tents here and made our homes and bought our land and want to settle down, but... God will teach you that this world is just a wilderness, just passing through. Don't want you to have much of it. So he's not going to give his people much, believe me. But here's what he's warning about. Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. The flesh and the soul are so contrary one to the other. And the flesh always wants the primary place. It wants its food, it wants its drink, it wants its rest, it wants its pleasures, and it wars against the soul. The soul wants you to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. The soul wants you to think about heavenly things. Let your conversation be in heaven from whence we look for the Lord Jesus Christ. The soul wants you to be a reader. The soul wants you to be a prayer. All these things the flesh fights against. Strive against all those things that hinder your growth as thorns and briars. That's cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches. We had that in our study. 
We also must labor against spiritual drowsiness, sleepiness, and idleness in God's service. Well, that one's for me. You don't have to listen to that one. I'll read it to you again see what I got. We also must labor against spiritual drowsiness, sleepiness, and idleness in God's service. That one's for the preacher. Labor to keep a good conscience both towards God and man. Now we shall look at how the tares ripen for the harvest. A tear does not improve upon God's mercies. God gives plenty of time to gather in or lay up or provide for the next world. But they neglect it and trifle it away. They have sermon after sermon, but no word fastens upon their heart. That's a tear. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us. But tares don't. You see, he says, our gospel came unto you, not unto you in word only. We see the tares can receive it in word only. Understand the word. Hear the word but determine in their heart not to obey the word. Now, 2 Corinthians 2.16. 2 Corinthians 2.16. Here's how the word operates. Here's how the messages that we preach operate. To the one we are a savour of death unto death, and to the other, the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? You see, those that are wheat, it's the savour of life unto life. The word spoken brings life to their heart. It's food to their souls. To the tares, it's the savour of death unto death. They go from one death to another hardening their hearts, treasuring up wrath for the day of judgment. Now, when conscience is disregarded, conscience is God's witness in man and will testify against man at the great day of judgment. But a tear disregards conscience, tries to sear it as with a hot iron, carterize it, Look at Romans 2, 15 and 16. Romans 2, 15 and 16. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts 
the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. See, the conscience has it, but here comes the mind with their thoughts, accusing or excusing. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, when the judgments of God hardens instead of softens the heart, that's the condition of a tear. Look at Isaiah 26.10. Isaiah 26.10. Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. And that's something God favors him day after day with sunshine, with health, with jobs with everything let favor be shown to the wicked yet will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord no matter what God does for him they turn it away now another example of that is Pharaoh Pharaoh had time after time after time, ten different times, he had an opportunity to be a believer, to trust the God of the Hebrews, and he turned it away each time. Look at Romans 2, 4, and 5. Romans 2, 4, and 5. This is what a person does when they don't realize or recognize that what they have is because God's given it to them. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, Here's another thing that tares do. When sins, big sins are counted small, and small sins are looked upon as no sin at all. And when sin is delighted in, some men take pleasure in wickedness. This is a tear. Oh, that's nothing. Everybody does it. Don't make any difference. Look at Job fifteen sixteen. Job fifteen sixteen. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Another thing about tares is when they're told of their sins and hellish pollution. They make excuses as if the fault was not theirs, just exactly like Adam did. What excuse did Adam make? We'll turn to Genesis 3.12. Genesis 3.12, and you see it so simply, and you wonder, this was the smartest man on earth, and he makes an excuse like this? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. 
Well, the tares all do the same thing. Not particularly blame their wife, but blame somebody else. Now, the reason for the law, the reason for the gospel, the reason for preaching is given to you in Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Who is under the law? Just the Jews? No. Did the Jews receive the law first? Yes. The law came down through Moses, given to the Jews. But those Ten Commandments, not the ceremonial laws, the Ten Commandments apply to everybody on the face of this earth. Those are God's rules for human beings. And the reason for them is, is that every mouth may be stopped. That is, those who say, I'm all right. I don't need a substitute. I am perfectly righteous in myself. I have stopped this. I have done that. Religious mouths. Stopped totally. Why? That they shouldn't become guilty before God. If you don't become guilty before God, you will never be righteous before God. Guilty precedes righteousness. When you're before the judge, you're there to either be innocent or guilty. Now, what kind of a plea would a person have that wants to plea innocence? We'll turn to Revelation 3. Going to show you the whole church of today, the modern church. This is the time down through God's time clock when, when we live. This is the religious person today in Revelation 3, 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, by nature, they really are a perfect candidate for salvation. But they don't know what they are by nature. What they think they are, that they're rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. So don't talk to me about another thing. We're perfectly satisfied with what we've got. And that's what we've been talking about. Tares. Now here's it. Here's our whole parable in a nutshell. When neither the word of God nor the rod of God... Neither mercies nor judgments and neither reproof from without or checks of conscience from within. When none of these can humble a sinner, at least restrain them from their hellish practices. And God has given them up. Look at Romans 1, 24 and 28. Romans 1, 24 and 28. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. 
God gave them up. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, push him out completely, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And God says, let them alone to the harvest. Now God has to put up with them. He can't stand sin, but he puts up with sinners because of the salvation of the elect. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15. It just tells you that God with much long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 and then 15. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What's that promise? Well, the soul that sinneth it shall die. person that don't repent, they're going to go to hell. But because he don't cast them into hell immediately, that's the way men would count what God should do. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And all of God's people, all of the church, all of the bride of Christ, all of the elect, will come to repentance. That's the all. Not everybody in the world. Everybody that the Lord, the God the Father gave to the Lord Jesus Christ back in eternity. Now, do we have anything on the harvest in, in God's word to describe the harvest? We'll turn to Revelation 14. Look at verse 15. Revelation 14, 15. Here's what's going to happen. See, this is history written in advance. Our Lord described the reapers as the angels. So here's what's really going to happen. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 18, And another angel came out of the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him saying that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Those are the tares. See, they get gathered first. Our parable told us that. But this is how this is going to happen. Angels are going to do it, all right. But that's not the worst. Souls still have to be judged, even though bodies are slain. Souls have to be judged. Here's the harvest. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place, and it was found no place for them. So they're standing in space. Can you imagine? Billions of people standing in space. No place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. There's the tears gone. Goodbye. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's those tares being bound in bundles to be burned. They're cast into the lake of fire. That was a great parable. We'll have another one next Sunday night. We'll start a parable of the... Um, uh, the mustard seed. Next week we'll have the mustard seed. Let's just bow our heads now. Father, we ask thy blessing on this brief study tonight of the parable. How terrible to be left out of eternal life. How terrible to be a tear, to be like one of God's people to read the same things that God's people read, to pray the same way God's people pray, and all the while just being a tear, never having come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you come to know him? In repentance. By asking for mercy, coming as a lost, guilty sinner. That's how we come to know Christ. And there's going to be all of these so close in resemblance, the tares, where our Lord's going to say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. We want to thank thee tonight for letting us come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to know him as a substitute redeemer, a wonderful Savior.